Uh, I told you guys last week, one of my favorite things about uh, our church is the people that God has brought. And uh, my job as a pastor is not only to be a blessing to them, but to help them find their gifts and calling. And so this morning we get to hear from a guy who I believe has a calling on his life to teach the Bible, and that's Stephen Coggin. So welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Well, I am extremely excited to be uh, back up here teaching through the Bible with you guys. Uh, we're actually going to be going back to our series in Acts. So we're going to be in Acts 23 today. And if you have a, a blue or a, a white Bible that we handed out to you, that's page 543. <clears throat> page 543, Acts chapter 23. Now, if you recall uh, what we've read up to this point about Paul's uh, missionary journeys, a couple weeks ago, we read about how Paul visited the temple, and he was, he was falsely accused. Uh, there was this mob. The whole city of Jerusalem went into this, this frenzy. They were um, trying to kill him, and the whole city was in turmoil. And this, uh, this Roman commander, who had been tasked with keeping the peace in the area, um, he sees what's going on, and he intervenes. He doesn't know any of the facts, any of the details, but he just knows that this guy, Paul, is at the center of all this chaos, and so he places him under arrest, and then uh, as Paul's being drug off under arrest, he, he asks to address the crowd, and he's, he's granted that request, and so he's able to share with all of these people um, kind of his life's story up to this point. He's able to share um, how zealous he was for studying the scriptures and desiring to know God, and uh, how he actually ended up persecuting the church and followers of Christ, and how he was responsible for imprisoning them and torturing them, and he even took part in the murder of Stephen. And then he shares his story of, of how Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and, uh, funny enough, closed his eyes to open the eyes of his heart and help him see that Jesus was the Messiah that they had been waiting for, that Jesus is the Savior. And so he's able to share his story up until the point where he tells them how God had tasked him with going to non-Jewish people and spreading this good news, this hope of Jesus Christ. And that's when the mob shuts him down again, and uh, the, the Roman commander commands that Paul be uh, beaten, flogged. Um, but then he speaks up and says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. I don't know if you knew this, but I'm actually a Roman citizen. And, and Roman citizens were entitled to certain rights. They couldn't be punished like that without uh, a fair hearing and a trial. So all of a sudden, this Roman commander, he's in the hot seat because he has this guy under a place under arrest. He was just about to whip him and, and, and beat him. And uh, that could put him in serious trouble because he's not giving this Roman citizen due process. So now he's got this guy uh, arrested, but he doesn't know what charge to bring against him. He doesn't even know what's going on, and, and he's seeking answers. So that's where we find ourselves today is this Roman commander seeking answers for why Paul is at the center of this this turmoil in the whole city of Jerusalem. So we're actually going to uh, go back a verse in, in chapter 22, at the very end there, verse 30, it says, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So, again, the whole, the, the whole city was in an uproar the day before. 
just thousands of people, chaos, shouting. And now here we are a day later. Hopefully you would expect things to simmer down. And it's not a whole crowd of people. It's just the Jewish council, which is comprised of uh, 70 uh, religious leaders plus the high priest. So you'd, you'd almost expect this to be more formal, more orderly, more organized, more uh, cordial, perhaps. But we see that that's not the case. And Paul gets a, a single sentence out before he's ordered to be struck across the face. <clears throat> so what was it that was uh, so controversial that he said, where he's only able to get a single sentence out before he's struck across the face? He makes an interesting claim that he's lived his whole life before God in good conscience. And that's when he's, he's uh, struck across the face. He's lived his whole life before God in good conscience. Now, this is a really interesting claim. Uh, it's easy to just read through and, and kind of uh, gloss over it. But how many of us could say that we've lived our entire lives before God in good conscience? Uh, I know I can't. That's for sure. So you start thinking about it, and, and we, you start thinking about Paul and what we know about Paul and his history and his, his background of persecuting the church and participating in the murder of, of Stephen. And you really start to wonder, how could Paul say that he's lived his entire life in good conscience before God? Is he saying that he's perfect? I don't think that that's what he's saying. And we see from other writings that, that Paul, uh, letters that Paul wrote, that he says that he's the chief among sinners. So he's, he's certainly not claiming to be perfect morally. Um, I don't think that he's just exaggerating either. Like, oh, I've generally been a pretty good guy. So uh, I'll just say that, you know, my whole life I've had a good conscience. I don't think that he's exaggerating. And I also don't think that he's lying, just straight-faced lying to them. I think that, that this is a truthful statement, but... I think to understand it, we need to uh, understand a little bit more about uh, what our conscience is and how it works. But, but I think that the main point that Paul was trying to get across was his whole life, he has been genuinely convinced that he was doing the right thing and that his life was pleasing to God. I think that that's really what he was getting at. He was genuinely convinced that he was doing the right thing and that his life was pleasing to God. Um, so there's, there's three things that I think we need to understand about our conscience and how we perceive our own morality. Um, the first one is that your conscience, you know, that little internal voice that is kind of the judge that tells you, uh, you know, not to do that. Don't do that. That's wrong. That's bad. Um, or it, it maybe affirms uh, good behavior and it lets you know that uh, you're kind of on the right track, right? That you're, you're in the clear and you're, you, you have a clean conscience that's not bothering you. So the, the first thing to know about our conscience is that it is actually given to us by God. And in the book of Romans, Paul actually writes, uh, and he makes this very clear, he's building a case for how no man is without excuse for their sin. And there's three things that he lists uh, that have been given to us uh, that make us without any excuse for our sin. Creation around us, the message of, of Christ, and our conscience. Um, he says in, in Romans uh, 12, excuse me, Romans chapter 2, he says that uh, the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So there's this idea that God's moral code, in a sense, is internalized and written on our hearts, and it's been given to us by God. The second thing we know that we need to understand about a conscience is that um, 
it applies a standard. It does not set the standard. And I'll explain what I mean by that, but I found that really helpful, uh, just a, a helpful way to think about it. And that's actually from a uh, professor of theology, uh, Wayne Grudem. He said that it applies a standard. It doesn't actually set the standard. And we see that, right? Uh, we see different people who have different understandings of what's right and what's wrong. And, you know, what's right for you might not be what's right for me. You hear a lot of those ideas. And people uh, might even refer to it as a moral compass. Your conscience is not a moral compass. If I have a compass and I look down and it's pointing north and then I pass it off to Zach, where's it going to point? It's going to point north. It's going to be consistent no matter who I pass it to, and it's not going to lead you astray, right? Um, I'm not going to get into science and the magnetic fields throwing compasses off. Just generally, a, a compass will not lead you astray, right? Um, but our, our conscience, it, uh, it lets us know how we're stacking up against uh, whatever moral co code we're using, but our conscience is not the, uh, it's not the ultimate moral standard. And the reason for that is because point number three, what you need to understand about your conscience is that it is affected by sin. Your conscience isn't a, a perfect true north because your conscience can become corrupt from sin. It can become tainted. It can become dirtied. And we, we might not even realize that that's the case. In Paul's letter to Timothy, he, he talks about the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as, as with a branding iron. I mean, just think about that. Your, your conscience is, you're just so stuck in your hypocrisy and in lies that your conscience has become seared and it's not pointing you north anymore like, like a compass would. So, because your conscience can kind of lead you astray, it's, it's not as, as simple as we might think that your conscience just tells you what's right and what's wrong. So, um, I'm going to throw something up on the screen here. And I understand that this is admittedly a, an oversimplification of what we're talking about, but it's just meant to get a couple ideas across, okay? So, this is not the uh, thesis for uh, my MDiv or anything like that. Um, but let's start uh, with number four here. And I'm sorry if it's a little small, but number four... Actually, let me back up. I'm going to preface this and create some, uh, help us orient ourselves. So on the left side, left side is good conscience. Just meaning your, your conscience is not bothering you or eating away at you. Um, you, you. You feel like you're doing the right thing. Right side is a guilty conscience. Okay? The top is where we're not actively walking in sin. Both of the top boxes, we're not walking in sin. We're not living in, in unrepentant sin. But the bottom, we are in sin. We are breaking God's moral standards. So we're going to apply God's moral standards to our conscience in these different areas. And let's start with four, because that's just really easy to understand. We all get it. Uh, you have a guilty conscience because you're in sin. You did something that you knew was wrong, and now you feel guilty about it. Your conscience is actually working correctly when that happens. And that feeling is, is a feeling of conviction by God, Letting you know that you, you, you don't belong there. You're not, you're not meant to stay here. <coughs> so that's actually your, your conscience working for your good. Now up here in the, in the upper left, we have a, a good conscience and you're, you're not walking in sin. That's actually, that's where God wants you. So 
your conscience is working correctly here. If you're walking, uh, the Bible says, if you're walking in the light is how it puts it. If you're walking in the light according um, to the, the, the way that God designed you to work, free from sin, um, you have peace. This is where you're meant to be. This is where God designed you to be. And your conscience does uh, work correctly when you're, when, you, when, you, when you're in sin and you have a guilty conscience, it's working correctly, but that's just not where you're supposed to stay. God wants to use that to move you into freedom and into peace of a clear conscience um, through the forgiveness that he offers, okay? So those are two examples of uh, when your conscience is, is working correctly and you can trust it, okay? But there's a couple times when we can't trust our conscience, and I think that this is kind of where, where Paul fell into this category. He said that he had a good conscience, but we know that he wasn't always doing the right thing. You can have a good conscience and be in sin, you're, where, where, where your sin just doesn't bother you. That's kind of a scary thought. Now, there's a couple different reasons that could be. One could just be pride. I know it's wrong, and it just doesn't bother me because I want to do it. Or you could be there out of ignorance. You just have a lack of understanding. You, you can't even see your sin. And that's, again, because our conscience can become corrupt from sinning again and again and again and again to where it just becomes the norm. And we can't even see how stuck we are. And it doesn't bother us anymore. It might not bother us, but we don't know that we were missing out on the freedom and the peace that God intended for us. Now, another way that your conscience can uh, mess you up and lead you astray, it's, it's kind of an interesting one, but you can have a guilty conscience and not be in sin. That's possible too. The feeling there is not conviction, it's condemnation. The feeling there is that you are, you're worthless, that maybe what you've done in your past uh, prevents God from ever loving you, from ever using you. And maybe you've honestly repented and brought that before God and you're seeking, um, you're seeking to walk in the light, but you, you still have that sense of condemnation. That's not your conscience working correctly and that's not what God desires for you and that's not what God wants for you. Even if the sin that you're distraught over is your own sin, but if it's, if it's something that you have brought before God and he has forgiven you for, that feeling of condemnation is not meant to be there. Now, another way that you could, uh, you could have a guilty conscience and not be in sin, this also happens, um, unfortunately, when, when people are manipulated um, and, and they get confused. I, I remember in my own life, actually, many years of my childhood, um, there was a, a pretty big lie that was told about me, and nobody actually knew the truth. And that lie actually... It, it, it was so strange, but I remember being, I don't know, seven or eight years old and actually feeling guilty about this event that occurred that I had nothing to do with. And so you can actually feel guilty if you're not walking in sin. Now, again, that, that's not your conscience helping you out or telling you the right thing. Your conscience is actually not working correctly in that scenario, and you're not meant to be there, okay? Now... <clears throat> How do we know if our conscience is off, and how do, we, how do we get back on track? Well, I think that there's two things, and there's probably more, but uh, I think there's two things that are very clear. The Word of God and the power of the blood of Christ. Because you can spend a lot of time 
you know, trying to, trying to get rid of this feeling of conviction or trying to get rid of this feeling of condemnation or, um, you know, trying to deal with, with, a, with a pride issue or just uh, trying to understand better, you know, what, what, what the right thing to do is. And if you, if you have a correct understanding from the word of God, that, that's a start. That helps you out. That starts moving you in the right direction. Um, Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's a, there is a mental or intellectual component of understanding God's will, understanding God's word by, by reading scripture um, that is part of the transformation that God has for us. But knowledge isn't the key, not the only key. It's not the, uh, the only thing that's going to set you free because Knowing something, it doesn't matter if you don't have the, the power to then execute on that knowledge. So I could know that I'm a sinner, um, but I don't have the power to, to change that. I don't have the power to save myself. And that's where uh, the blood of Christ covers me and gives me that freedom and that peace that God desires for me. In Hebrews 9, it says, our conscience, it says that our conscience actually needs to be purified. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So I can tell you that you can spend as much time as you want trying to work on yourself or listen to podcasts of how to improve yourself or read books of how to improve yourself, and you might find some benefit there, but you are not going to experience the freedom that God wants for you and the freedom that God offers you and it's only available through Jesus Christ and what he did by, by paying for your sin on the cross. That's the only way. And you can spin your wheels trying to figure it out and using the same methods that got you into this mess to try to fix it, which is I'm going to come up with a plan to fix myself. I'm going to come up with a plan to make myself happier. I know that I'm lacking peace, so I'm going to try to find fulfillment and find peace in pick something. That's not going to work. It only comes through what Christ has done for us. Okay, moving on. Uh, you, you can go ahead and take that down now. So we're going to keep reading. Um, let's pick it up in, in verse 2. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to them, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if an angel, what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? So, the high priest commands that Paul be struck across the face, and then Paul calls him a, a, a whitewashed wall, which is kind of an in, interesting insult, but it just means a hypocrite. Um, so he calls him a hypocrite, and 
the, the reason he calls him a hypocrite is because it was actually against the Jewish law to mete out punishment before a verdict was reached when somebody was on trial. So no verdict had been reached. They still don't know what Paul's guilty of, but he commands for him to be punished, and that's, that's breaking the law. And so Paul calls him out on it and calls him a hypocrite. And then instead of, um, instead of rationalizing that or working through that, the council, they don't really respond to that allegation. They just point out, yeah, well, you broke the law too because you insulted the high priest, which you're not supposed to do, which was, which, that was also a law um, that, you should not revile uh, or speak poorly of um, those in leadership. That comes from uh, Exodus chapter 22. You shall not curse a ruler of your people is, is how it's worded. So, um, and then Paul says, well, I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't know he was the high priest, which is interesting, but maybe he really didn't know who he was. Maybe he heard the command to be struck, but he didn't know who said it. Um, Paul hasn't been in Jerusalem for a number of years, so maybe he just didn't know or recognize who the high priest was. Either way, what they're doing is they're bickering about Old Testament law right now, which is something that is kind of a common ground, kind of evens the playing field because they're all educated in Old Testament law. That's a realm that they can all engage in in debate and discussion. Um, But then Paul does something different, and he... uh, he takes the discussion out of Old Testament law. And he issues a single statement that causes the council now to start arguing amongst each other. And what he does is he tells them why he's on trial. And he says that he's on trial because of the hope and the resurrection of the dead. More specifically, and he he doesn't have a chance to actually articulate this, but Paul's on trial because of the hope of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's really why he's on trial. But he's not able to explain that because they just start fighting again. Now, this is, a, this is an interesting idea. So the, the council is comprised of two main groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees, for a, a reason that I don't completely know, they only believed in the authority of the first five books of your Bible that they call the Torah or the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the only scriptures that they held as authority. And God didn't tell us everything that we need to know, everything that he's laid out in, in the whole Bible. He didn't give all of us, uh, he didn't give all of that information in that, those first five books. It's kind of progressive revelation where over time, through, um, through other writings that we have in our Bible now, God helps explain some of these things, like the immortality of the soul. And that... Uh, you don't just cease to exist when you die, but that your soul uh, lives on and goes somewhere, right? Um, in the first five books of, of your Bible, it doesn't clearly spell out uh, a lot of ideas around angels and demons and the spiritual realm either. And so because of that reason, the Sadducees rejected that. They didn't believe that there was a resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. They didn't believe in angels or demons. But the Pharisees, they believed in all of those those biblical concepts. So they start arguing um, among each other. Now, I think it's interesting that a lot of these people, a lot of the Pharisees, they had spent their whole lives studying Scripture. And they knew by studying Scripture that if there was one message God was repeatedly giving his people, it's that a Messiah was coming, a Savior is coming, who's going to set things right, who's going to... Um, bring justice 
who was going to fix the, the problem of sin, and that this Savior was coming, the Savior was coming, and for generations they had been listening to this message and looking forward for this hope of a Savior, of a Messiah. And for probably decades, these men studied the Scriptures with that hope of the Messiah, this hope that one day he'll come. But at the time that he's, they're arguing with Paul, that Messiah had come like 30 years ago, and they missed it. And they crucified him. And then when other people showed up to testify of that Messiah, they persecuted those people. And when more people came with the, the message of, uh, of Jesus, they persecuted those people. And here Paul is again. This isn't the first time that they've been exposed to this. This isn't the first time that they've heard it. They can't plead ignorance here, but they reject the message of the, the hope that their people have been clinging to for generations and generations and generations. Isn't that crazy that um, we, we live in a world that is desperately longing for redemption? And when they hear that message of hope, they say, well, they, they might say a few things. They might uh, get very angry at you, or they might say, thanks, but no thanks. Or they might say, you're being narrow-minded. But there are so many broken people. And I can't assume that everybody walked in these doors this morning all for the same reason. Maybe you have a hope and a longing um, that is, hasn't been fulfilled yet, and, and you still haven't turned to Jesus to fulfill that hope, to find that eternal life that God really wants for you. Maybe you've walked in the, the doors today because um, you're going through a really rough time and you feel like you just need some, uh, some encouragement and to get set kind of back on your, your own two feet. And that is awesome, and I love that, and I love that you're here, and I want you to keep coming back, and um, we want to grab lunch, get to know you, hear your story. Um, but I will tell you that if, if that's where it stops, uh, that's not where it stops for God. God has such a greater hope for your life than just to set you back on your own two feet. He wants you to know that freedom and that peace of a clean conscience walking in the light, to be forgiven, to be given eternal life. That's what God wants for you. Or maybe you're here because, um, you know, that the, the kids need some positive role models in their lives, and so we should take the kids to church. Um, that's great, and we want to love on you and your kids and get them plugged into youth group and get you guys plugged into to a small group and build community around you. Um, but if, if, if good influence is all you're looking for, you're, you're stopping short. There's something so much deeper and richer that, that God wants for you. There's so many different reasons that, that people could come in through these doors and so many different hopes and, and, uh, and hurts that people have. But I'll tell you that far too often, um, the idea that we have as a solution, we're selling ourselves short and we're settling. God wants something so much more for you. And the hope, sometimes it's right in front of our faces. And sometimes it's a message that we've heard for maybe 30 years and maybe we've rejected it and rejected it and rejected it. I would encourage you just to, to think about that. Maybe, maybe your conscience and your sense of what's right and wrong um, isn't as trustworthy as you thought. And maybe, maybe you need to ask a couple questions and do a little bit of thinking and, and really start um, 
really start looking into, you know, the, the life that God wants for you, the life that God desires for you to bless you with. Um, let's go ahead and, and read starting in verse 10 here. It says, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, that's the Roman commander, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So the Roman commander senses that this... uh, this council meeting that was supposed to be orderly and structured, um, it turns into a mob again, and he thinks that they're going to kill Paul again. And so he puts an end to it by having to physically remove Paul from the crowd. And then we read that the, the following night, <coughs> excuse me, the, the following night, as Paul is arrested, he's visited by the Lord who stands by his side and gives him a message of, uh, of encouragement. Other translations put that, uh, they put that, be of good cheer, be courageous, have courage, be encouraged. And I think it's really, really interesting um, that God does something here for Paul that all of us wish he would do for us. He tells him the next step. He tells him what's coming. You're going to testify of me in Rome. I, I was thinking about that. Um, how many of my prayers are for God to give me answers? And there's nothing wrong with that, but there is something wrong with that if, if that's the only prayer I pray right? If the only prayer I pray is uh, wanting God to give me a roadmap, to tell me exactly what's going to happen, um, then, then I'm probably missing something. I don't think I'm on track there. So who's been skydiving before? Woo! Okay, we got one. So you'll know exactly how this works, okay? So what happens the first time you ever go skydiving is they put you on this little plane and on the ascent, they give you a two-page laminated piece of paper and it's tiny font and you're bumping around and you have to read all the instructions and it tells you how to go and get the right harness and put it on and zip up and the carabiners and you'd have to twist that and then um, don't grab the harness that's fraying and about to fall apart. Uh, shoot, screwed that one up. Um, and then, and then they, they tell you to just to jump out of the plane, right? You read all the instructions. You have all the information. No, what they do is they literally strap you to somebody who knows what they're doing, who is competent, and who, who knows not just the knowledge, um, but somebody that you can trust, right? That's how they do it. I think that Paul, in this moment, well, let me back up. Let me ask, let me ask this. Why do we tend to always think that more answers are what we need? Why do we always think that? God, you're holding out on me. If you just told me what to do, then I'd get it uh, straight A's, 100%. I wouldn't screw it up if, I, if you just told me, if I just knew. 
And so often we lose so much sleep, and that's, a, that's an oft-repeated prayer, just asking for God to tell me what to do next. Why can't we see that it's more likely who we're with that makes so much more of a difference? In that moment, where do you think Paul's confidence came from? The fact that, that God told him that he was going to Rome? Or the fact that he was arrested and God showed up and stood by his side? Jake, you can come, uh, worship team can come back on, come, come on back up. Um, I think that there, there's tremendous riches just pressing into that idea and realizing that the confidence that we want or maybe that we need doesn't come from God answering all of our questions, but maybe it comes from being in that situation with God, of God joining us in our trials. And I, my, my prayer for, for us as a church, for you, is that you would know Emmanuel, God with us. I pray that you would know that the, the freedom that he wants you to walk in, that he wants you to walk in a, in a clean conscience, free from the bondage of sin and shame. My prayer is that we would see that, um, you know, for some of us, maybe there's that longing, that hope. And maybe it has been decades for you of you seeking other answers and not realizing that it's only by coming to Christ that you will find rest, that you will find peace, that you will find forgiveness. That's my prayer, and I pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that that, that would be true of us as a church, that we'd be people who know that you stand by our side, and that whether or not you give us the answers, that you are there with us, guiding us. And Lord, that even if we have been going astray for 30 years, like the Pharisees, or longer, that that's not the only time that you, you give us that message of hope, but that you keep sending people to preach that message of hope to us, Lord. And I pray that we would not reject that, that we would not turn a blind uh, blind eye to that, Lord, but that we would, Lord, that we would listen to your spirit, give us clean consciences, Lord, correct our faulty thinking. Lord, you're our only hope, and I pray that, um, that we would all experience and know that this morning. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.